This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Certainly times in life when you wonder if something that's been damaged is ever going to be the same again. I like to use sports illustrations because they connect well with Dr. Aloisi. And so um, some of you maybe uh, saw uh, about a week or so ago uh, Gordon Hayward, who plays for the Boston Celtics. Um, it was, everyone was really excited this year. He just signed on uh, with them as a new team, um, was going up for uh, a backdoor uh, kind of a lob, and came down, and if you saw it, it uh, maybe kind of twisted your stomach a little bit uh, in how he broke his leg and his ankle, and it was a pretty gruesome injury. And one of the main questions is, is he ever going to be the same when he comes back? Is he ever going to play that way again? Another NBA player that uh, switched teams this offseason is, is Derrick Rose, who now plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers, which if this was five years ago, that would be amazing. Because five years ago, um, he was uh, in, in the race as one of the best players in the NBA. But since then, he's had so many knee injuries that now people didn't really even want him this summer. And so he ended up signing uh, basically for a, a minimum contract with the Cleveland Cavaliers because they thought he's never going to be the same again. Now, what can be true physically can at times be true relationally or even spiritually. But perhaps you've had a, a relationship with someone and, and something's come up and you wonder, can it ever be made the same again? Will it ever be the way that it used to be? Is the damage too great to be undone? The passage we're going to look at this morning, like the nation of Israel, is in many ways facing that same kind of a question. The nation of Israel is wondering, can it, can our relationship with God really be the way that it used to be? Can it really be what it's designed to be? We're going to be looking at the uh, uh, portion of the book of Zechariah this morning. If you would open up to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is uh, writing right around 520 B.C. Uh, if you remember your, your Old Testament history, uh, this was after the exile and after the beginning of the return. In 536, there's a decree that allowed the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. About 50,000 Israelites go back. They're really excited. They begin work on the temple they begin these kinds of things, and then very soon they meet opposition. And they stop the work on the temple. And now 16 years later, God uses Zechariah along with another prophet, Haggai, to really encourage the people to complete this work that they had begun in building the temple. And one of the main messages that Zechariah is giving is actually the fact that God has not forgotten his people, but that he remembers them which is what his name means. Yahweh remembers. God remembers his people. And in the first section of the book, he shares eight visions that he receives. And, and it seems that they all happen in the same night. And, and almost all of them have the exact same pattern. There's an angel there. The angel shows him this vision. And then the angel interprets it for him. The only one that doesn't happen exactly that way is the one we're going to look at in Zechariah 3. It's the fourth of the eight visions. And I think really that it and potentially with the fifth one serve as kind of the, the, the core of what 
God is communicating to Zechariah and to the nation of Israel. In the first three visions, though, uh, God begins by pointing out that he has not forsaken his people, but he's actually still jealous for them. And therefore, he's going to punish the nations that have punished them because they are like, uh, it's like someone poking your eye. It's like, and he's saying, that's, that's the way that I view those who would treat you in this way, that would treat Israel in this way. That I've not forsaken you, I still remember you, I still care for you. But potentially, the nation of Israel might think, how could this ever really be? How could God really still view us in this way? How could God bless such a sinful nation? And the answer, I think, is found in Zechariah chapter 3, that He will do so through salvation. Let's read Zechariah 3 together. Then He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now in this very first verse, we we see the, the, the setting or the picture of what's happening here in this vision. Joshua is the, the high priest. He is the, the priest who serves uh, as the primary go-between between God and the nation of Israel. And when it says the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, uh, that word for standing uh, is often a word that's used to refer to priestly ministry. Uh, and so perhaps it seems that he's functioning in his role as a priest. But the word can also be used to talk about standing trial in a court. And, and I think perhaps, uh, as, as you begin to see it, initially you think, oh, he's standing and ministering as a priest, and you very soon realize, well, actually, it seems like there's almost like a judicial scene in place. Because as he's standing before the angel of the Lord, what's happening is Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Psalm 109.6 uh, points out that if you are in a, a trial, you stand at the right of the person you're accusing. And so it seems that this is the, the, the setting that we have here, a kind of judicial setting in which Satan is standing and accusing Joshua. And if you uh, take in Hebrew, you, you probably maybe pick up on this, but we don't necessarily always get this in our English translation because the word Satan means what? Accuser. And so in a sense, the, the, we could translate it, Satan is standing at his right side, Satanizing, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because that's not a verb, right? And so instead we might say, the accuser is standing at his right side, accusing him. This is one of Satan's primary roles. In Revelation 12 we find out when he is cast out, he is described as the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them night and day. And so Satan is doing his work that he is continually doing. He is accusing God's people before God. And in verse 2, we find God's answer to Satan. As Satan is standing there to accuse them, the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So God, as He hears Satan's accusation, His response is, God says no. God says you're wrong. God says, Satan, you have no ground for your accusation. And the reason he gives is the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. 
And this is why I think it's important to understand. I don't think Satan is just standing and saying Joshua's messed up. Because of who Joshua is, Joshua is the high priest. And so I think Joshua is, is essentially standing as the, represent, uh, the representative of the nation of Israel. And so that's why when God answers this way, it's like, well, God chose Jerusalem, so I'm going to be okay with Joshua. No, I think it's, that's a representation. This is my people. I've established my kingdom. I've established my throne at Jerusalem. And therefore, I am rebuking you, Satan. And he describes him at the end, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? It's getting to be the time of year in which we want to have fires again out in our backyard. I know some people love to do it in the summers too. I, I, I prefer fall and spring uh, so that uh, you're not just sweltering in the heat. Um, but you, you, you've seen this before. Uh, maybe you accidentally threw something in and you, you didn't want it to be thrown in. And so you grab it real fast before it can completely burn up. And, and that's kind of the imagery here. There's this, there's this piece of wood. It's practically gone, but you grab it just in time before it actually completely is burnt up. And God says, that's what I've done with the nation of Israel. The, the language that we see throughout the Old Testament, there's still a remnant. Yes, I have judged this nation. And yes, they have borne the fire of my wrath. But I did not utterly consume them. I've plucked this brand from the fire. Why? Because I chose Jerusalem. It was my sovereign choice of this nation. And that's why, therefore, I still preserve this nation. I still have a purpose for this nation. But then in verse 3, we find out something more. And what we find in verse 3, I think, would be shocking to the Jews who would be hearing Zechariah's message. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. This word for filthy is, is a word that is perhaps the strongest word for filth in the Old Testament. We are in the middle of uh, house, uh, house renovation, trying to, to redo our kitchen. And so a few weeks back, we did a, a bunch of uh, demolition. You know, you're knocking out plaster and all this kind of stuff. And, and pretty soon, you just feel like you're covered in this stuff. You, know, you just feel like you're, you're filthy. You think, I just got to get out of this stuff. I got to get washed. But the word here, I think, is in a sense stronger than that and potentially maybe even is used because of part of what uh, God is trying to communicate because this word is not a filth that comes onto me from outer things. This is a filth of human excrement or a drunkard's vomit. This is a filth that is someone who has soiled themselves, someone who has completely covered themselves in some of the grossest things that you could think of. And what's particularly shocking is Joshua standing here before the angel of the Lord in this way. The high priest had special garments that he had to put on before he could go before the Lord because he had to make sure he was in proper clean attire. And here Joshua is before God in this filth. 
it's a sense blasphemous. God had God had killed the priest for having the wrong kind of fire as they approach him. And here Joshua the high priest is standing covered in the things that God Himself had actually had said were unclean. And the nation of Israel understood if this is how God sees us, we are in trouble. Because they had an understanding of God that I think is better than we tend to have in our day. Because we tend to think of God as someone who's like, hey, no big deal. That's okay. Everyone gets a little dirty sometimes. The nation of Israel understood God's holiness. The nation of Israel understood you could not stand before God if you were unclean. Because you couldn't even get into God's presence without first making a sacrifice to pay for your sins. And here Joshua is covered in filth. And we begin, we begin to understand now Satan had a lot of grounds for his accusation. How could you let them stand here? How could you let him stand here like this? Look at him. And Joshua's condition was an outward illustration of the inward condition of the nation. That, that perhaps Satan is essentially saying, you've chosen this nation as, as a nation of kingdom of, of priests. They are supposed to be declaring you and your message and your glory to the world. But look at them. They can't fulfill this role. Because even the high priest shouldn't be serving as a high priest. Certainly the nation as a whole couldn't fulfill this kind of a role. God, you need to wipe them out. But God has already pointed out He's not accepting that accusation. He rejects it. How? And I think the answer is, in part, verse 4. Verse 4. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him. And, and before you read the rest of it, I think if you're a Jew, your anticipation might be, even though God's already rebuked Satan, might be, he's still going to wipe out Joshua. Maybe he's not going to do it because of Satan, but he has to do it because of his holiness. Joshua is standing here and they spilt the garments, but instead, what does God say? Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And there's where we see that's exactly what this picture was intended to be. It was a picture of your sin. It was a picture of your iniquity. And, and I think particularly your guilt. The fact that you stood guilty before God, that God has taken that away. You know what's awesome? God doesn't just stop there. What does He go on to do? I will, I will clothe you with festal robes. These are robes that were, were very costly. These were the kind of robes that were only used for special occasions. These were the kind of things that if you were going to do some kind of work, you wouldn't wear these. You'd take these off before you had to do anything that perhaps might get them uh, dirty. It's the kind of uh, outfit that demonstrated glory. 
And as Zechariah is watching this, I, I don't know if this is necessarily what happened, but it seems to me that perhaps he's looking at this and he is just so excited at what's going on, he can't stop himself. Because all of a sudden he speaks out. Verse 5, look at what he says. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And I think the turban there is really a reference to the, the, the head uh, covering, the, the turban that the high priest was called to wear. In Exodus 28, God talks about this turban. He says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You shall fashion it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. And it shall be always on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So I think as Zechariah is looking at this, he's recognizing what's going on. He's saying, finish this work, God. Show us that we are accepted before you. That yes, we stood in in our iniquity, but you took those away and instead you put us in this kind of robe and that head covering then, in a sense, puts that final touch that says, just as Joshua has now been accepted, you as a nation have been accepted. So Isaiah 61 points out, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garment, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so God looks at the state of the sinful nation and offers them salvation. But God's purpose of salvation never stops at His work of forgiveness. His function of salvation always moves on then to actually seeing His people begin to walk in holiness. And so in verse 6, the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform, perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. So, so what is it that he says here in this charge? First, if you will walk in my ways. I think that's a, a, a phrase that is used often in the Old Testament that's basically saying, if you will live in alignment with my commands. If you'll conduct your life in light of my character and my intentions. You're going to reject all the things that lead to compromise, all the things that lead to sin. Instead, you are going to walk morally before me. And then second, if you will perform my service. And I think there it's talking about his priestly duties. Functioning in, in the role of the temple, leading in the sacrifices, doing the kinds of things that God has called the priests to do. That if you do those, then... You will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. That you will decide disputed matters. Uh, you'll guard the court from pollution. Um, and then I think probably the, the most significant thing is at the very end. I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. 
Now, who are those who are standing here? And I think understanding the fact that we're talking about standing before God, he's talking about his angels. He's talking about the cherubim. And when he's saying you're going to have free access among those who are standing here, he's essentially saying you're going to have access into my presence. Potentially even a greater privilege than it seemed that the high priests in the past had experienced. Because we understand the high priests in the past only had access once a year to the Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim were. And yet here, God is saying, if you actually perform these things, you can have free access. You can come freely into this place. Now, how is that ever going to be possible? And I think the answer is it's not ultimately going to be possible for Joshua. But it will be possible for the person that Joshua is a picture of, which is what God goes on to describe in verse 8. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. And I think the, uh, the people who are sitting in front of Joshua are his fellow priests. He's the high priest. They're his fellow priests who are sitting there in front of him. And he says, you are a symbol. You are a picture. What are they a picture of? Behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. That term servant had been used significantly throughout the prophets already to point to the Messiah that God had promised. And at this point in time, much of uh, the teaching about who he was and what he would do had already been uh, given in, in places like Isaiah and Ezekiel and these kind of places, talking about this servant who was to come finding out the fact that he was going to be a man, and yet at the same time, it seemed like he was going to be God. And this person who would rule as a king, and, and specifically he was going to come from the Davidic line. And yet, as well, he was going to serve a priestly role. And so Joshua, as, as a priest, as a high priest, stands as a picture. A picture of this Messiah who would come who would be his servant, who would be a branch, someone who's coming out, potentially even out of the stump, in a sense, of the Davidic uh, kingdom that had been almost wiped out, that you'd have this branch shooting out from it that would come. And what would this servant, what would this branch do? What would this Messiah do? Verse 9, For behold, the stone I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it declares the Lord of hosts. Now this stone is one of the most difficult things to figure out what's happening in Zechariah. What is this stone? And there's a whole bunch of different uh, attempts to try to explain what's going on. Um, I, I think the, the two most likely to me uh, would, would be to say that this stone is a reference to the Messiah as the cornerstone, the one who's being set as the foundation uh, for what God's work was going to be. I actually lean towards the second, that the stone is actually a, a picture of the, the plate that's on the turban that uh, was already put on Joshua as the high priest. It was that plate, that stone on which the inscription, Holy to the Lord, was laid out. 
I think that's the inscription he's talking about. I will engrave an inscription on it. That inscription will be holy to the Lord. Now, what is this stone that has seven eyes? And again, depending upon how you take it, either the stone itself has seven eyes or potentially that the eyes are looking on the stone. Either way, the seven eyes, seven uh, is a number of completeness in, in, in Scripture. And so it's the point of someone who sees everything, someone who knows everything. And so I do think it is a reference to God's omnis- omniscience that would be manifested in uh, his, his, con- his sending of the Messiah. But the primary thing that I think God wants to emphasize at the very end, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That phrase, in one day, is set in contrast to how iniquity was removed in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, how was iniquity removed? Year by year. Year by year. Year after year after year after year. And so how would you ever have the possibility of having free access to God? And the answer is, you'd have to have iniquity removed once for all. And that was what was going to be accomplished through the Messiah who would be coming. Jesus Christ, as He comes, would take away sin once for all. And if you look through the rest of Zechariah, you find God actually pointing out the truth that one day, this servant, this branch, that the nation of Israel, these people who now looked as though God was done with them, that they would see this one that they actually pierced, this one that they killed and yet was now alive, and that they would mourn. And they'd realize, look what we did. And the glorious truth found in chapter 13 is then on that day, God would open up that fountain so that they would have their iniquity removed, their sins cleansed through this one who would come. He would remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Really, that was a symbol of peace. A symbol of safety. It was a sense saying, God's going to get it back to where it was, and even better. Even better than it was. Because this is a work that God can do. So I'd like to just highlight a few truths. Recognizing as God talks about His work in the nation of Israel, I think there are truths that would still then apply to His work in the church. That One of the, the key things we see here and throughout the rest of the Scripture is that salvation is solely a work of God. Hopefully, you recognize yesterday was celebrated as 500 uh, years after Martin Luther uh, had his 95 theses uh, uh, sent out. And one of the things that was, was emphasized throughout that Protestant Reformation is this truth. Salvation is God's work. And as you read through this, what does Joshua do? You know what the answer is? Nothing. Nothing. 
All he's doing is standing there. He's standing there as Satan accuses him. And he's standing there in these filthy garments. And what does God say? Does God say, get those off, Joshua? No, what does he say? You guys take those off of him. Say, all right, Joshua, now put on these clothes. He says, no, no, I'm going to put these clothes on you. I'm going to put these robes on you. Because Joshua can't do anything. But God does the work on his behalf. Salvation is solely a work of God. Second, salvation is based on God's sovereign choice. As Satan is accusing Joshua and by extension the nation of Israel, God's response is not to say, in the words of Charles Feinberg, I rebuke you because of the righteousness of my people. They don't have that righteousness. Nor does it say, Satan, I rebuke you because your claims have no merit. Because they certainly had merit. Nor does he say, I rebuke you because the nation has already suffered so much. Nor does he say, I rebuke you, Satan, because I know they will do better in the future. And what does he say? I rebuke you. Because I chose them. Because I chose them. Salvation is based on God's sovereign choice. And yet we should never forget that sin is exceedingly vile to God. That as Joshua stands before him, God views him in the worst way possible. Because that's all any of us have to stand before God. Isaiah points out even our righteousness is like filthy rags. But the problem is we don't even have a lot of righteousness. You think about what the nation of Israel had done. I mean, God had blessed them in so many ways. And what did they do? They spurned Him. They worshipped idols. They flaunted His laws and His commands. And God over and over again warned them and warned them and warned them. And they refused to heed His warnings. Hundreds of years in which God was calling them to repentance and they were refusing to do this. And again, as we look at ourselves, we have to say, we are no better than them. That we stand just like they did, covered in the worst filth imaginable. But, the glorious truth is that no sin is beyond God's grace. That certainly the nation of Israel at that point in time could have thought, there's no way. I mean, there's no way God could forgive us now. But the truth is, there's no sin that God cannot forgive because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And so Martin Luther, 
had this to say, when the devil throws up our sins to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where He is, there I shall be also. Robert Murray McShane had this to say. I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I'm ashamed to go. I feel as if it would do no good to go, as if it were making Christ a minister of sin. To go straight from the swine trough to the best robe. And a thousand other excuses. But I am persuaded they are all lies direct from hell. John argues the opposite way. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This is God's way of peace and holiness. It is folly to the world and the beclouded heart, but it is the way. And so God's grace can cover any and every sin. But because we have been saved by this grace, because we as wretched sinners have been saved by God's amazing grace, that we need to do what God has called us to do. Just like God calls Joshua then to walk in his ways in response to God's gracious act of salvation, he calls us to walk in his ways. We can only stand before God because of his sovereign, gracious salvation. There's no room for pride here. There's no room for any self-confidence. None of us have any right in ourselves to approach God. All we deserve is judgment. And yet God's grace is greater than our guilt. And He removes our sin and clothes us with His righteousness. And then calls us to live in conformity with that righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we confess again that we do not understand why you would save us. There's certainly no inherent value in in who we are or what we have done. We're simply a stick that deserves to be burned and yet you plucked us from that fire. You saved us from your wrath. The wrath that we rightly deserve. And you did it in a way that, that demonstrates you alone get all the credit. And so we ask that you would help us Remember these truths. To love these truths. And in light of what you have done for us, in, in, in hearts with hearts of gratitude, hearts of humble submission, we would 
walk in the way that you have called us to walk. Pray this. Because we do have access to your throne through the work of your servant who took away our iniquities once and for all by bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And so it's in his name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.